Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. You may remember that last week we began this new sermon series uh, through uh, selected psalms, and we considered Psalm 1. And in Psalm 1, we encounter this contrast between these two paths, the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. And now in Psalm 2, we learn about the conflict that exists between these two paths, the paths of the wicked and the paths of, or the path of the righteous. Oh, please turn your attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, why do we need this psalm? This psalm is quoted in, in the book of Acts, the New Testament book of Acts, and the apostles attribute this psalm to David. David is the author, according to Acts, of this psalm, which means that God has preserved this psalm for a long time. David lived a long, long time ago. So why has God preserved in this book Psalm 2? Well, we begin, can begin to answer that question and discern uh, part of the purpose of this psalm for us as we consider how the early church viewed this psalm. Now, the early church that we learn about in the book of Acts is a church that's a marginal community, a church that exists upon the, the fringe of society. Uh, this church was a persecuted, uh, persecuted church. And in Acts chapter 4, we, we learn about a prayer that this early church prayed to their God. And Luke records for us at least part of the content of this prayer. And in this prayer uh, by the early church, they quote Psalm 2. And they quote Psalm 2 as a way to, to help them make sense of this world. 
to help them make sense of the recent events that they have just witnessed before their eyes. Jesus' arrest, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, uh, Jesus' departure in his human nature, nature as he ascended into heaven. And thus the ongoing rebellion and sin that they see all around them. They look to this psalm as a way to help them make sense of, of the world around them. But they also look to this psalm as a source of comfort. Notice that they, they pray this psalm. They knew this psalm so well that it came out in their prayers. Oftentimes, it's those passages of Scripture that come out in our prayers that are those passages that are especially comforting to us. And so we, we can tell that this psalm served as a, a big source of comfort and, and nourishment, spiritual nourishment for the, the early church. And so the early church looked to this psalm both as a means of instruction, as they existed as a marginal community in, this, in the Roman world, and as a source of comfort, as they experienced many trials and tribulations. And so too, for us today, we also look to this psalm because, and need this psalm because we're in need of instruction. We're in need uh, to help make sense of this world around us. I think we all have, have struggled with that question of why does God, as a good and sovereign ruler, allow such uh, sin and evil and trials and tribulations and heartache to occur in this world? Why? Well, we can look to this psalm to help us make sense of God's ways in this world. But we also can look to this psalm as a source of comfort. We are a pilgrim people who are travailing a foreign land, looking forward to the new Jerusalem, and so we, too, are in need of comfort. Well, you'll notice that this psalm uh, begins by saying, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? There's raging and plotting going on among the nations and peoples of this world, according to the psalmist. Now, this word for plot that's used here in verse 1 is the same word that was used back in Psalm 1, verse 2. Remember what we considered last week. Blessed is the man who meditates upon the law of the Lord day and night. And so just as the blessed man meditates upon the law of the Lord, these peoples and these nations meditate about how they can rebel against the Lord. So both are meditating, but they're meditating in opposite ways. As we continue on here in this psalm, we see that the kings and the rulers of this earth join in this plotting and scheming against God and his anointed. And this word anointed refers to Messiah or Christ. So in one sense you can say that, that uh, these, these rulers and these kings, these peoples and these nations are rebelling against God and in the historical context, the Davidic king, but ultimately God's Christ, which is Jesus Christ. And the psalmist continues, and he says, uh, let the, these, these kings, these rulers say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. And this language of, of, of cords and bonds is referring to how a yoke would be placed upon the back of an oxen. And so the, these peoples, these nations, these, these kings and these rulers are seeking to unyoke themselves from the authority of God.
Now, if we return to Acts, uh, Acts chapter 4, we, we, we learn that the early church knew this psalm well. And they interpreted these verses, verses 1 through 3, as primarily referring to Good Friday. When did the peoples and the nations and the rulers and the kings plot and scheme against God and his anointed one? Well, when Jesus was arrested, betrayed, and crucified. So yes, there was a lot of plotting and scheming going on during David's time, during Solomon's time, and the subsequent Davidic kings throughout the history of Israel. There's a lot of plotting and scheming going around in our own day and age. But the early church tells us that the primary reference of verses 1 through 3 is, is Good Friday. Those, those phrases in the creed which we just recited that Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, dead, and buried. You know, boys and girls, uh, one commentator I was reading this week uh, described it this way. Imagine, some of you may have gardens at home in the, in the, uh, in the summertime. Imagine you have a garden and it's your job, it's your task to go outside and weed the garden or water the garden. And imagine you go out to the garden and there's uh, 10 or 12 little garden ants. Not poisonous ants, not fire ants, just normal, common ants. And imagine those ants are plotting and scheming to take you down. It's pretty ridiculous, isn't it? It's laughable. You can just raise up your foot and squash those ants right underfoot. Well, this is, this is sort of what's going on here in this passage. And notice how God responds to this plotting, this scheming. Look with me at verse 4. What does God do? God sits in the heavens and he laughs. He, he views this situation as ridiculous as, as a, a, ten ants trying to plot against a gardener to, to try to destroy him and kick him or her out of that garden. It's laughable. Now, how do we understand this language of God laughing? Does God really have a face that can smile? Does God really have a voice box from which the, the sounds and noise of laugh, laughter can proceed from? What's the psalmist saying that God, God laughs? In, in fact, we, we encounter a lot of creaturely descriptions of God. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, we'll learn that God has a right arm, that God has nostrils, that God walks to and fro. And sometimes it's, it's almost as if God is described as a really big human being who lives upstairs. So what does the psalmist mean when, when he's saying that God laughs? Well, we have to recognize that if God communicated with us the same way in which he communicated um, um, amongst the members of his own trinity, we would have no hope of ever knowing anything about him. Because the finite cannot comprehend uh, the infinite. And so what God does for us in his word is he condescends to us. He accommodates his revelation to us in a way that fits our finite and weak capacity. So imagine you, you, you overhear an adult getting down on one, one knee and talking to a three-year-old. And you overhear this conversation and, and you hear this adult simplifying his or her language. You hear a lot of analogies and metaphors. Now, this adult is, is speaking to a three-year-old in a way that's categorically different than the way in which he or she would speak to his or her boss at work. Now, if that adult tried to speak to this child the way in which he or she speaks to the boss at work, there would be no real communication going on with that three-year-old. 
And so think of God as the adult, and we're like that three-year-old. And God uh, gets down on one knee and speaks and reveals himself in a way that fits our finite capacity. And so this is why there are so many creaturely descriptions about God. It's because God cares about our understanding. He wants us to understand him in a way that's intelligible to us. And so when we come across these creaturely descriptions, we shouldn't take them in an overly literal way, but rather we should ask ourselves, what is that deeper principle that exists uh, behind this language? And here, when we read in verse 4 that God laughs, what it's telling us is that God is mocking these, these peoples and these nations, these kings and these rulers. God is absolutely confident in his rule and reign over all things. God is not taken by surprise uh, because of this plotting, this scheme, and this rebellion that's occurring here on earth. Now, why is God so confident in his sovereign rule and reign? Well, if you look with me at verses 6 and 7, we find out, Verse 6, God then says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, what's this reference to uh, his holy hill? Well, this is a reference to Mount Zion in Jerusalem. This is a reference to the Davidic kingship when God established that royal throne in Jerusalem through his servant David. And then Paul, uh, uh, God continues in verse 7, says, I will tell of the decree The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, what what does the psalmist mean here when he records God's speech as as referring to this king in Jerusalem as his begotten son? Well, this language of begotten is the language of, of royal ascension or royal coronation. Later this spring, I believe, uh, uh, King Charles is going to be coronated or crowned in that royal coronation service. That's the image that we should have in mind here. This is the language of royal ascension. That king who, yes, in one sense has been appointed king his entire life, but that day of his coronation service, he approaches the palace in one sense as an ordinary man, and he leaves the palace then as the crowned king. In 2 Samuel 7, God establishes this covenant with David. And through David, all of David's uh, future sons. He promises David that one of his sons will always be on this holy hill in Jerusalem as king. And this is the language that God uses to describe David's royal lineage. He says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Therefore, when God crowns a Davidic king, he begets a son. That's how how God refers to coronating a king. Uh, We also can think of it in our own country. When a president is inaugurated, in one sense he wakes up, yes, as president-elect, but there's a sense in which he's just an ordinary citizen on that morning. But then when he is inaugurated as president, He is now the president of the United States in an official sense. The nation has has begotten a president or begets a president. And so verse 7 refers to this this divine royal coronation. Of course, we see that God established David as king. God established Solomon as king and then many Davidic kings subsequent to that. But none of those kings are the primary reference here because if you look at verse 8, did any of those kings inherit the nations? 
Not in the least. And so we see that this is uh, primarily referring to the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. When was Christ's coronation service? When was he crowned king? It's an interesting question to think about. Well, in Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul is preaching in Antioch, and he quotes uh, this verse, verse 7. Listen to what he says in Acts chapter uh, 13, verses 32 and 33. Uh, The Apostle Paul says, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That day was Easter Sunday. Romans 1.4, the Apostle Paul says that Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power according to his resurrection from the dead. So on Easter Sunday, God the Father said, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Today you are crowned as the incarnate King of the universe. Now, of course, Jesus in his divine nature has always been ruling creation and providence. But on that resurrection day, Jesus, for the first time, is ruling all of creation, not only according to his divine nature, but also according to his human nature as the incarnate Son of God. Therefore, verses 1 through 3 are primarily a reference to Good Friday. And then verses 4 through 7 our reference to Easter Sunday. So what's God's response to the plotting, the scheming of Herod and Pilate of the Sanhedrin, even by extension the Gentiles? Well, God laughs as he raises his son from the dead and conquers death as he, as he silences the rulers and authorities of the heavenly places. And then in verses 8 through 9, we, we hear about uh, this Uh, King Jesus' royal reign. So verse 8 says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Remember what Jesus said when he rose from the dead and appeared to his disciples and was about to ascend to his Father in heaven? He says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Or in Acts chapter 1-8, a parallel passage, he tells his disciples, remain here in Jerusalem until you are anointed uh, with power from on high, and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so verse 8 is referring at least in part to this age, this age between the two advents of Christ, where the gospel is going forth to the nations. Where Jesus is beginning to make the nations his heritage as he conquers the spiritual strongholds of the evil one through his word and spirit. So again, remember back in Luke's gospel when we considered Palm Sunday and Jesus rides into Jerusalem mounted on a donkey. I made the point that kings never rode donkeys when they were going into battle. Donkeys were a sign of peace. And therefore, in this age, Jesus is extending the terms of peace to those who rebel and vitiate against him. 
But then we read in verse 9 that there is a judgment day coming. Verse 9, we read, And you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So this age, Christ is exercising much forbearance as he extends these terms of peace to the nations. But there's a day coming when his mercy and his grace will transition to justice as he exercises this final judgment upon all those who rebel against him. And so we see here in verse 9, Christ getting down off that donkey and mounting that white stallion, that war horse, as he will come like Joshua did of old and cleanse this present creation from all that which is unholy and establish that new creation. So verses 8 and 9 is a summary of Christ's royal reign in this age and then at the end of this age when he comes again in his second coming. And so again, we see in this psalm in verses 1 through 3 that that reference to Good Friday. Then we see God's response on Easter morning as he laughs and, and sets his king on his holy hill as he raises Jesus from the dead. And then here in verse 8 and verse 9, we see how King Jesus rules both in this age and in the age to come. Well, now in verses uh, 10 and 11 and 12, the psalmist sort of applies then these verses to his hearers. And you'll see in verses 10 through 11, the psalmist is calling those who rebel against King Jesus to submit, to repent, and to believe in him. The psalmist says, kiss the son, lest you perish in the way. Now again, we should think here of of that king sitting on his throne and that that subject coming before him, uh, getting down on his knees and kissing the scepter of this king. That's the image that's going on here. Kiss the son, repent, submit, believe upon King Jesus. Now there is an idea, especially prevalent uh, today, where you know, true freedom, true blessedness, true happiness exists when we unyoke ourselves from God, from his seemingly outdated morality, from just religion. Uh, religion in this sense is sort of like that straitjacket. We just need to unzip it, cast it off to the wayside, and we'll be truly free. But you'll notice that the psalmist speaks uh, quite contrary to this. The psalmist says that true blessedness, freedom, and joy exists when we submit uh, to this king, when we kiss the son. This son desires, longs to offer you the forgiveness of sins. And that is indeed our greatest need, is it not? Our greatest need is not material possessions, not um, a better life in the here and now, not, not just to be generally happy. Our greatest need is, is the removal of the guilt of sin. And King Jesus offers that to us if we kiss the Son. Uh, This King Jesus longs to dress your naked body with the perfect robes of his holy works and merits. This King longs to grant you his Spirit who comforts you, who assures you, who sanctifies you. This King Jesus longs to grant you an inheritance in his holy kingdom. Jesus told his disciples right before he left, I'm leaving you, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. This uh, this king longs for you to be included in his holy kingdom. Kiss the son. 
repent and believe upon King Jesus. We will notice in verse 12, the psalmist concludes by saying, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now here, the psalmist is not, not merely speaking to repentance and faith. He's, he, he's saying more than this. He's saying to those of you who already do believe, you are to continue to find your refuge in Jesus, in his kingship. Now this reference to, to, to refuge implies that there are threats, there are dangers, there are fears, there are anxieties that we face in this world. In the Old Testament, there were cities of refuge where if someone, an individual, committed unintentional murder, these individuals could go find refuge in these cities and be protected from uh, the revenge from the, the deceased individual's family. And so these cities of refuge are a place of protection and safety. And we live in a turbulent world. We live in a world that's filled with physical illnesses, sicknesses, disease, death. These things come knocking on all of our doors. If they haven't already, they will. We live in a world where we witness almost on a daily basis the heartache that sin brings to our lives, to the lives of our loved ones, to the lives of our communities. We live in a world that's filled with relational conflict and strife that occurs within marriages, that occurs within families, that occurs within communities. And oftentimes, when, personally, when we reflect upon our own life and we think about the past, some of the first emotions that come to mind are, are regret, bitterness, hurt. When we then think about the future, we begin to be filled with anxiety and fear. When we think about the present, we are lonely, despondent, even angry. This world is a turbulent world. We are a people in need of refuge. Now our problem is not that we don't seek refuge. Our problem is that we seek refuge in all the wrong places. Oftentimes we, we seek refuge in ourselves. We just try to assure ourselves that we have things under control. We try to assure ourselves that we... We can fix our situations, that we can fix other people, that we can make ourselves happy. We might seek refuge in, in things, practices that may be destructive or practices that may just be morally neutral but not good places to find our refuge in. We might find our refuge in other people. But notice what this psalm is telling us. This psalm is telling us that we are to find our refuge in King Jesus. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. This congregation of Christ is where we are to find refuge. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean to find refuge in the kingship of our Christ? Well, think about what we've already considered in this psalm. This psalm is primarily pointing us to Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And so, we take refuge in the good news that we receive from Good Friday. That whatever sufferings we are called to endure in this life, we can be assured that we have been rescued from the greatest suffering of all because Jesus was condemned and crucified on our behalf. We will never face the wrath of God. We can take refuge in Easter Sunday 
that life is hard in this world. And all too often, life is cut short far too quickly. However, we can be assured that we have a future hope of a bodily resurrection of the dead. A time in which we will have bodies free of pain, free of disease, uh, free of sorrow, that will mirror the very human nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the, in the time being, we rest in those promises that we hear when God tells us that his power is made perfect in our present weakness. So no matter what trials and tribulations we are enduring in this life, we know that because of the good news of Easter Sunday, God promises to show up in a special way in your weaknesses, in your trials, in your afflictions, to sustain you, to grow you, to nurture your faith. And so we can find refuge in the good news of both Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Blessed are those who find refuge in Him. Now as we wrap up, I'd like to just step back for a moment and, and, uh, and briefly summarize what we've, we've covered here in this psalm. Notice how beautifully this psalm summarizes the New Testament. Verses 1 through 3 point us to Good Friday. Verses 4 through 7 point us to Easter Sunday. Verse 8 points us to this time between the two advents of Christ. And then verse 9 points us uh, to Christ's second coming. And now verses 10 through 12. These verses are an apt summary of the apostolic preaching that we witness in the book of Acts. When you witness the preaching in the book of Acts, you hear the apostles driving home this point of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. And in response, we are to kiss the Son. We are to repent, believe, and find our refuge and this crucified and risen Savior. So blessed are those who find their refuge in him. Let us pray.